Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. This week, we talk about the quagmire Australia now finds itself in, just as the rest of the world is opening up and learning to live with COVID-19. In this edition, we examine the role the media is playing, holding not just the political class to account, but also tempering the expectations and demands of a significant proportion of Australians who don't believe we should open up with some 12,000 active COVID cases in New South Wales alone and hospitalisation increasing at a frightening rate. Joining us today via Zoom is Rachel Baxendale, who's the Victorian political reporter for the Australian newspaper. Rachel has previously worked in the Canberra Bureau for the Australian as well. And Michael Koziol, who is the deputy editor of the Sydney Morning Herald's Sunday edition, The Sun Herald. Rachel Baxendale and Michael Koziol, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Okay, so to both of you, thank you very, very much for joining us today on Fourth Estate. It has been a really confusing few weeks as Delta in Sydney has grown to such a level that we're all kind of feeling defeated by it in many ways. Now, during that time, we've very quickly gone from thinking about COVID zero as the plan and the only plan to a plan that says, no, we need to learn to live with it, Um, all while WA and Queensland are apparently deciding to chart their own course. So first off to both of you, and perhaps to you first, Michael, is uh, zero COVID dead? Well, it's definitely dead in New South Wales. Um, I think it remains to be seen whether it's dead. I mean, look, it will be dead very soon in Victoria, um, but whether they try, whether they can get this current outbreak back down, I think is still a matter that's up in the air. Mm. Um, But... I think you're going to see uh, in Victoria and Daniel Andrews has kind of uh, pretty much sided, if you can use the word sided, with, um, uh, you know, premiers and, and the federal government who say, Let, let's stick to the Doherty plan. Um, he's kind of indicated that, you know, that they're going to open up at those vaccination rates. And so, um, you know, COVID will be let into Melbourne. If it, if it does happen to get eliminated this time, it'll be let back in again and it'll go from there. And I think uh, so goes Sydney and Melbourne, so goes the rest of the country, um, albeit, you know, maybe a little bit later, but probably not very much. I think you're seeing the you're seeing the collapse of zero COVID, even if it's not already dead and cremated. But there is something that can be done about that there, isn't it? Isn't there, Rachel? I mean, you know, Victoria can decide, no, we're not going to go along with Doherty. WA can decide that. Queensland can decide that, can't they? Look, to some extent they can, but I I think what we're heading towards, you know, we we can't sort of keep locking down um, for for absolutely ever. I just don't think there's, um, apart from anything else, there's a public tolerance for that. Um, I I think, you know, there is clear consensus that we need to get to a stage where the the vaccination numbers are such that, um, you know, the, the deaths and severe illness are minimal, um, and and I think I, I Daniel Andrews has been leaving in a little bit of wiggle room. He won't rule out um, not he won't completely rule out lockdowns after eighty percent, but does say it's highly unlikely. 
Um, you know, I think that's largely because he just, you know, doesn't like ever ruling anything out. He always wants to leave himself room in case, you know, in, in case something unforeseen happens, like, like most politicians. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree with Michael. I think, um, I think it's entirely possible that even with our current outbreak, we won't get back um, to, to zero. It's it's really touch and go at, at this point. And whatever happens, we've got, you know, a good few weeks before we get there, even if we do get to, to zero, by which time a substantially greater proportion of the Victorian population will be immunised. Uh, and I think... Um, Whatever happens, we're, we're heading towards a point where we are going to have to reopen, and that, by definition, means that um, that, that COVID zero has to die. Um, and and yeah, it's just a matter of getting to a point. I guess the question is, um, you know, at, at at the moment in New South Wales and to a lesser extent in Victoria. Um, you know, e even if we have given up on COVID zero, we still, you know, absolutely need to be keeping numbers as low as possible because a significant proportion of the population is unvaccinated. And, um, you know, if things were completely out of control, we, we would be seeing hospitals swamped and, and, and dozens, if not hundreds, dying. Um, but w we are eventually heading to a point where um, we've got to um, completely abandon COVID zero sooner rather than later. Mm. Michael, I mean, let's look a little more closely at, at Queensland and, and WA because they seem to be very happy uh, locked away. Their lives are pretty sweet at the moment with zero cases in new, you know, new, new infections being reported daily in both states. Uh, in both, yes, in both states. Why should they open up, do you think, and join, um, you know, Victoria and New South Wales with our skyrocketing infection rates? Well, look, I can understand why they would, you know, if, if when you're in a position of zero, uh, you, someone turns around and says to you, hey, do you want to have COVID? Uh, they say, well, no, of course not. Um, and that's an understandable position. But, I mean, Pal Shane McGowan have, in theory, signed up to this agreement that says when you get to that vaccination rate, you open up and it circulates and it's manageable. So, when, I mean, in theory, they have already agreed to do that. Uh, now, you know, we see... Uh, then, you know, it's been said that they're crab walking away from that agreement. I think what you're seeing partly is um, there's now, it's becoming a politicised um, scenario where um, obviously children have become, because they're affected by Delta, they've become a big part of the debate now, do we need to vaccinate children? And you've got a not insignificant group of people saying, well, hey, you know, 70%, 80% of the adult population, not good enough. We need to be vaccinating children before we can agree to open up. And there's a large contingent of people who, for political reasons, I think as well, are now saying um, that that's what they believe because mm -hmm. Morrison and Berejiklian have committed so strongly to we must open at 70%, at 80%. So you're seeing those battle lines kind of drawn up now um, and the same people who, you know, might have said a year ago that anyone who wants to reopen wants to kill your grandma, they're now going to pivot to saying anyone who wants to reopen wants to kill your kids, you know, you know to put it crudely. Um, so, look, I mean, I don't know. Is it just a bit of political bluster from those premiers? You know, we all plays well at a state level, the kind of state-by-state -state parochialism, 
or are they really looking to go and shift the goalposts again on the vaccination targets? I, I don't know. Mm. Rachel, what do, what do you think? I mean, the PM has shifted around on these issues and, um, you know, in the process and over the course of COVID, power kind of seems to have shifted to the states quite significantly. Presumably um, the premiers are reluctant to hand that power back. So is it actually a, a pretty key moment in our history and, and the history of the Federation? Uh, look, it is interesting. Um, I, I think I agree with you. The, the premiers are enjoying having the power that they do have. The, the one thing that they haven't had power over is vaccine supply, um, which certainly, you know, is, 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 has been the limiting factor in um, reaching the end of this. Um, and when I say the end, I mean, yeah, it, to, to some extent, we're not going to go back to life in, in 2019. Um, hopefully we will um, go back to, to some semblance of normality. But, you know, COVID, COVID is here to stay and we need to be dealing with it one way or another. Mm. I mean, it is and I it has been for the past 18 months in that, um, you know, since, since when in, at any other time in history, a would hundreds of thousands of people every day have been uh, tuning into state press conferences, and and um, and I guess you know, state governments have never had more um, power and influence over our daily lives than they've had currently. I think to some extent they probably want to hold on to that, um, and I think you know I, I think public opinion is probably a bit different in places like Western Australia in particular because it's so separated from the rest of Australia. I think. Um, Queensland's probably a little bit more like some of the other states because I think when you do have um, a lot of people habitually travelling over borders, a lot more people are inconvenienced by the state border closures and that has a bit of an impact. Mm. Um, but but I think, you know, there are a lot of West Australians, you know, enjoying their relative safety from, from this at this point. But um but but you can't keep it out forever. Um and and I think um I think Mark McGowan and, and um Anastasia Palaszczuk are going to have to confront that at some stage. So Michael, is there a clear path for the Prime Minister and also for the country? Well, I thought his rhetorical shift maybe not a shift, but uh, a strengthening on Monday was very interesting. Um, and one doesn't want to be too cynical about these things, but, I mean, um, Rachel, it was your newspaper that had that great story about um, Palaszczuk's polling um, that she was apparently <laughs> on to, to guide some of her response. Um, I'd be shocked if there wasn't at least some polling um, involved or research involved in the shift uh, or the strengthening that that Morrison undertook on Monday. Um, now, whether that that could just be based on the attitude in New South Wales, which I think now is very much, uh, you know, people have come to understand that, you know, it's here, it's not going away, zero COVID is dead, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, look, I don't, I don't know um, what the path through for him is, other than like to say that I think I'm sure. His um, rhetorical shift was based on sensing that the national mood is increasingly over lockdowns and that might be more scattered um, in different states, but it's only going to move more in that direction as time goes on. Okay, well, let, let me put it to you this way then. Do you think that the media is seeing this for what it is and pushing him enough to find and show us the consensus? 
Well, I think the media is kind of, it's, it's very interesting to see how Gladys Berejiklian is trying to lead the media uh, in some respects in mm. her very deliberate moves to start the daily press conference with vaccination, uh, uh, say quite explicitly that she wants the focus to be on hospitalizations and vaccination numbers, not daily case numbers. I think the media, if we speak of it in a, you know, in that kind of conglomerate way, is still a little bit in kind of 2020 settings where it's the case numbers that drive the news cycle each day. Um, and that's really hard to change. But I think I think again, most people are still in the in the headspace where it's the cases that are the headline number. And I think that's going to be a slow shift, especially outside New South Wales, when it eventually comes. So, what is our role in that as as journalists? Um, I mean, it's hard to say because you know the case numbers are still massively important, um, but we probably, in the overall scheme of things, do need to spend more time looking at hospitalisation rates, vaccine efficacy, uh, telling those slightly more nuanced and complex stories and mm. number-oriented number, number oriented stories. Rachel, what do you think? Do you think that the, the affected premiers, i.e. Uh, the Victorian and the New South Wales premiers, are doing a, mm. a better job of trying to shift the discussion? away from just uh, sheer, sheer case numbers, I mean, particularly New South Wales. I think that, that has been, for me, and in, in any event, quite evident in New South Wales. But do you think it's happening in Victoria as well, that Andrews is trying to shift it away from sheer numbers and, and onto the kind of, you know, a more nuanced, contextualised discussion of what living with Delta is? Yeah, look, I think we've been doing a bit of both and there's certainly time to in our press conferences because yes. they've been known to go for go for two hours, for which I, I don't know whether the Victorian public's grateful for that and, and no apologies to them. Sometimes things drag on. But um, um, and, and I think Daniel Andrews only does that because he sees it as being in his interest. But I am, you know, as a journalist, I am grateful every day for the opportunity to, to ask as many questions as we've got. Um, and certainly that doesn't seem to be something that happens in Canberra or in Sydney. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of, um, of, of that balance between the bigger picture, which, which I agree, you know, needs to be what we're moving towards, and I think it is. Um, it is what what um, what we're being led towards at the moment, both at a state and and a federal level. Certainly in Victoria, uh, you know, all of the recent announcements at press conferences have been about vaccinations, um, and I think that's what the public are looking to in terms of, you know, in terms of hope of a way out of this. Mm. So, I mean, some of the sec some sections of the media have been against lockdowns pretty much from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, early on, a lot of the opposition came from business reporters, it came from economists, but like, you know, many things in Australia, lockdowns have generated um, a culture war within and of itself and some pretty fierce critics, some only, of course, loosely connected to reality, it should be said. But, but as we've been saying, the rhetoric is shifting and we're seeing this increasingly in media commentary and reportage. Michael, you wrote about the need to have a date for opening up a, a, a couple of weeks ago. Part one of the question, what was the reaction? And two, what was your path to that position? 
Well, it's funny. Um, I, I think I only really got um, positive reaction to that piece, but maybe uh, the people who no doubt disagree with it just decided not to say anything. Um, and and to, to some extent, it was kind of being deliberately provocative um, because I don't actually think it's such a bad thing to have uh, the vaccination rates as your target, as long as that is stuck to. And, um, you know, I don't want to uh, say that I was um, uh, a soothsayer or anything, but like I said in that piece that they're going to keep trying to change the goalposts, mm. um, people for who whatever reason don't want us to open up and don't want things go back to normal. And the first thing is going to be children and the next thing is going to be boosters. Um, the next thing is going to be, oh, no, you can't open up until everyone's had a booster or the most vulnerable people have had a booster. And I just foresee a scenario where that keeps happening. Um, and that's why I sort of said, well, you know, maybe you need to just pick a date um, because I also have a real problem with uh, the idea of us being sort of held hostage by people who uh, are reluctant or just slow to get a vaccine. Um, because we've seen in plenty of other countries that, you know, you can get to your 55, even 60% quite fast, and then it tends to slow down. Mm. Uh, and I just think there are an awful lot of people sitting around at the moment who are fully vaccinated, who aren't allowed to do anything. Um, and they're going to start thinking, you know, why should I be sitting around here with no freedoms, waiting for people who don't really care that much mm. uh, to go out and get a vaccine? So, you know, it's been more than a month now since Atagi said to everyone in Sydney, um, go and get the first vaccine available, go and get AstraZeneca. Um, and we're up to 60% first dose now. Well, I don't see why that shouldn't be 100, to be honest. You've had four weeks. <laughs> Rachel, has you, have you found that in the course of, you know, covering COVID that, that your thinking has shifted in, in any respect? Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's been interesting. I guess I've sort of found it really interesting the extent to which the federal government's perspective on this has changed. I mean, they went from being pretty anti-lockdown and, 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 you know, constantly attacking the Victorian government about, about the lockdown um, to then, you know, having a national cabinet agreed consensus once, once Sydney happened that, um, that lockdowns were, were absolutely necessary um, and then, um, and, and now there sort of is, is a bit of pushback and argy-bargy as we move towards, you know, as, as vaccination becomes a factor and, uh, we, you know, move towards a, a point where, um, where it has to, where, where we, you know, where lockdowns have to become a thing of the past. Um, uh, look, it is, I, I mean, I think I'd be lying if I said, you know, my perspective hasn't changed, you know, as, as um, as things have progressed, um, I, I think there were times last year when I was portrayed as being anti-lockdown, and I wasn't. I saw the necessity for it. I just, um, you know, didn't think that Victoria's um, second wave a would have happened if hotel quarantine was being managed properly, and b have been anything like as bad if we'd locked down earlier. Um, ironically. Mm. Um, so look, I, I I think I have always seen it as as an effective measure for for um, managing it. Um, I think you know as we 
I, I, I don't think it's something we can do forever. I think it is something that absolutely has downsides, particularly, um, you know, the sad irony of it is that it particularly has downsides for for younger, more active people who are less likely to die or become severely ill as a result of getting COVID. Um, and as, you know, as we get to a point where everyone who is older and more vulnerable has had months now to get vaccinated, um, I, I do think, you know, public tolerance is, is waning for um, for everyone else to have to be, you know, locked at home to, to look after those people who, who haven't, you know, taken the initiative to protect themselves. Yeah, but if yet, yet if we if we listen to organisations such as the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, they said today opening up at eighty percent of vaccinated adults um, would be, you know, a disaster, bordering on child abuse. I think is what they said. So if we wait for our children to be vaccinated, we'll be in lockdown till the middle of next year. It's getting a lot of traction on social media. Do you think that that kind of anxiety over child vaccinations versus opening up now, which is playing out on social media, particularly amongst the kind of high-profile influencers. Do you think that that actually influences media coverage of that issue, Michael? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I said when I've commissioned pieces on it this week um, because it's so clearly going to be a flashpoint um, and there should be advice at National Cabinet um, uh, within, you know, a couple of days about uh, where that is going to go policy-wise. But mm. I absolutely think it's the next big political flashpoint. Um, and, uh, you know, we get it absolutely will. There'll be a flurry of media coverage about it, and I suppose rightly so, um, because notwithstanding what the AMA might have to say, um, I mean, there is a group of experts who... Uh, have looked into this, they've modelled it, they've come up with uh, a plan or they've come up with the targets that underlie that plan. And that's, that's, you're perfectly entitled to question it. It's not, um, it's not infallible. It's, it's, it's certainly not um, uh, beyond being able to be questioned. Um, but I think so far the Doherty Institute's done a pretty good job of explaining um, why it came to the numbers that it did uh, and why it still believes that those numbers shouldn't, and that plan shouldn't change. Um, and I've, I haven't seen anything yet that would make out that that's right. But you know, of course, I'm open to it. <laughs> Rachel, to what extent do you think um, you know journalists such as this, your, yourself should be taking into account the kinds of uh, emotion, anxiety, fear that we're seeing on on social media into account when you're analysing, dissecting and analysing uh, a, a, a model such that the Doherty Institute has given us? Oh, look, it's difficult. I, uh, so, social media, not so much. I mean, um, you, you mentioned the views of the AMA. I think they need to be taken into account. Mm. Um, but, um, but, but put in perspective, um, I suppose, yeah. I, I think I think there does need to be recognition for um, for the fact that there are hugely differing views among people who are experts in in this field, and um, and we need to, uh, you know, I, I think we do need to preference the views um, of, of experts above, you know, influences on social media. But I think we also need to, you know, put those views of experts in in context. 
um, and, um, and, and, and communicate to people, which is often quite difficult, that there is nuance in these things and the views of experts differ sometimes wildly. Um, I think the other thing we need to do is, to, to some extent, is to prepare people for the fact that, you know, there, there is no sort of perfect no harm solution to this problem. Mm. People, we are going to have to reopen at some, some point um, and people are going to die as a result of that. Um, and I think that is going to be something that will be difficult for the media to report on without sensationalising it. Um, and you know, um, deaths are a serious a, a serious thing that we have to report sensitively. Um, but but yeah, I, I think I think they are going to happen, and I think we need to be prepared for that. And I think to some extent we've got a responsibility to prepare society for that. And and I guess one of the things I'm focused on asking about nearly every day at the moment is what are we doing to prepare our health systems for the fact that, you know, we are, if, if we open even at 80%, even at the upper end of the Doherty modelling, um, our hospitals are going, if international examples are anything to go by, our hospitals are going to be swamped. Um, and, and our hospitals were already struggling to deal with um, the consequences of people not going to doctors during last year's lockdown. Um, so, you know, we, what are we doing to prepare for that, I think, needs to be the, the sort of big picture, longer term um, perspective, really. And how confident are both of you that media, that, you know, Australian journalism is up to the task? Because we did a pretty poor job, I think you'd have to say, on AstraZeneca. Um, you know, should we expect this, should we expect a better level of journalism, a, a better uh, level of scrutiny um, when the time comes that we open up? Look, it's funny, I um, kind of drafted a uh, fire and brimstone column last week hacking into the media about x y and z and then I just I read it again in the morning with a fresh set of eyes and I just thought nah look you know it's it's easy to be critical of the media and you know there are certainly many valid criticisms but um you know I still think in the whole AstraZeneca debate like the thing that probably did you know the most damage to the reputation of that vaccine was the federal government calling a 7 30 p.m press conference to say don't take yeah. it <laughs> and, you know, what are you going to do as journalists um uh so i think um look you know yeah we'll we'll do some things better than others but broadly speaking i think um it's just the public that's going to lead us into this next phase of coronavirus like you know people are, are not mugs um mm. they know they have to get vaccinated and after that they expect that you know, we'll we'll do what the rest of the world has done, and there'll be flare-ups and incidents and debates, and you know, we'll we'll cover some things well and something not so well, uh, depending on the day. But I think broadly speaking, we'll 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 do okay. Mm. Okay, I want to just take you both briefly back to the morning media conferences. You know, where the premier's policies are questioned by by journalists, as of course they should be. 
But I'm wondering, like, you know, why can't we just have the numbers released on social media and have the leaders come out and, and talk when they've actually got something to say rather than having them stand there and talk, sometimes for hours on end in your case in Victoria, Rachel, <laughs> uh, about, you know, why the reject shop is still open or, or, or seeing, you know, that why the Melbourne curfew um, ha- hasn't been applied to Sydney in the same way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, where is the line for the both of you between probing and just basically meddling or even just looking for a good headline. I mean, it, 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 it does seem to me that the behaviour of reporters in, in some of the press conferences, you know, um, leaves something to be desired. Michael, do you have a view on that? Yeah, well, look, I mean, um, I suppose if you were one of those people who was particularly exercised about the um, various strands of Sydney's lockdown, Mm. Um, you would have been grateful for the people um, hammering the Premier every day about why was Bunnings open and why was the Rezac shop open. Now, that is not something that I was particularly exercised about. I was much more interested in, and I'm still interested in, you know, what are they doing about transmission at essential workplaces and other things like that. Um, But, you know, uh, and that's partly why I think, um, you know, having endless press conferences um, as you do in Victoria. Like, I just don't understand why they do it. Um, like, you know, you're spending an eighth or a ninth of your waking day uh, holding a press conference <laughs> yeah, when surely they have other work to do. So um, I, I think if you do kind of have a, yeah, short and sharp daily briefing, um, that does at least kind of focus everyone, um, focuses the journalists on... Uh, you know, getting their couple of questions in. Um, let's not forget that, you know, we do have the rest of our day to go and find stuff out in other ways. Um, but obviously it is important uh, during that one hour of the day when our leaders are, you know, publicly visibly accountable to mm. be there hammering them with questions. But there are other ways of finding stuff out too. So, you know, I think um, it's it's sometimes difficult to use those press conferences to your advantage um but uh and we've seen varying you know levels of success in people trying to do that but you know if you were one of those people who was really um exercised about sydney's lockdown then you would think those press conferences were a great success because mm-hmm. they seemed to have yielded results uh you know the curfews came um the uh the harsh exercise limits and all that they all came so people who were pushing for that seemed to get what they want. Mm. Um, And, Mm. you know, whether you think that's a good or bad thing um, depends on your perspective, I guess. Sure. Rachel, and commiserations to you down down there because your (laughs) conferences can really go forever. Um, But do do you think that the media conferences are adding much to our knowledge of the situation or what should happen? Uh, Look, I I think on balance, yes, Um, but I agree they don't need to be as long as they are. I mean, I I think it would often be really interesting to kind of do some sort of um, analysis of um, how much information you actually get out of various sections of, of press conferences and various people. I actually, um, you know, often prefer the press conferences where it's just Jerome Weimar, for example. Um, you know, he's, he's quite 
slick and good at spinning things, but he does actually give, you know, he's, he's there to talk about the logistics and the cases and the facts and figures. Um, and you do actually genuinely elicit information out of him. Uh, whereas often if, if it's a politician, particularly the premier, um, a, the press conference goes for much longer, but, but most of that is t- taken up with him sort of repeatedly getting his lines out, um, regardless of what question is asked a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of, you know, frustrating for, for, for us as journalists to some extent and, and, and more so for the public because, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty boring to listen to, you know, journalists asking the same question repeatedly and, you know, getting a, getting a, um, pretty repetitive, although often quite theatrical, um, answer, um, from, from the premier and, um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I hesitate to be too critical of questions. I'm, you know, there are, there are definitely times when I, you know, get attacked for various questions I've asked, as do my colleagues. Um, I, I, I can't think of an occasion where I've ever, um, you know, you, you might scoff at this, but I can't think of an occasion where I've ever asked a question with the intention of getting a headline. I, you know, more often than not, someone will have, you know, sent me a message on Twitter saying, this is the situation I'm in. Can you ask about this? Um, I actually think I've become more responsive to, um, to, to questions that I get sent from random members of the public than I do from questions I get sent by editors. And these days I rarely get Set questions by editors, to be honest, yeah. Um, and 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 yeah, and I think um, in that sense, you know, I, I'd also kind of be pro press conference in that I think that in a certain kind of way, and I wouldn't want to over egg it. I, I think it has made um, that forum more accessible to the public than it's ever been previously. Right. Okay. I would just add one thing as well, which is that like, um, no matter how bad some of the questions can be. The answers are inevitably worse. Um, and if, if, the, if the answers were better, i.e., you know, clearer, sharper, and actually answered the questions, then you'd get through a lot more and, you know, you wouldn't have the same kind of, you know, here we go again, same questions day after day, blah, blah, blah. So I think even though we can all be frustrated by some of the questions sometime, the answers are always more frustrating uh, from the politicians. Okay, so a final question for both of you briefly before we go as we, you know, we grapple with this really devilish problem of opening up now or soon versus waiting till either the caseload numbers are down or children are vaccinated. What do you both see as the role of news media? Is it, do you think, to advocate for what it may variously see as best for the country or is it to pull up behind the policymakers and the health professionals and accept what they're saying. Michael? Well, I broadly speaking don't think it's really our role to do much of either. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I don't think it's our role to advocate for, for something, um, even though some outlets and some individuals may choose to do that. Um, I mean, you know, within within the confines of a an opinion piece or whatever it's fine but um nor do i think it's it's our role to get behind the government and say you know this is the plan and you all must accept it um it's to do what we always do and to um scrutinize what 
authorities are saying mm. um, and uh, to, you know, analyse and critique um, their decisions and, you know, ask people how they feel about them, ask our readers, ask our viewers, uh, whoever the audience might be, uh, and always to obviously then have a mind to what is the public mood so much as you can discern it. Um, and, you know, if we think it's true that most people um, are more open to reopening um, than they were a year ago, um, then, you know, that obviously kind of uh, informs your perspective on these things, but it doesn't change the um, overarching role, which is to scrutinise what the powerful are saying um, to the best of our ability. Right. Rachel? Yeah, I, I agree completely with what Michael's just said. I, I think as a journalist, you know, your job is not to advocate. Um, it is it, it is to ask questions um, and to report. Uh, and, and I think, you know, while you don't want to be unnecessarily undermining um, people in, in authority, um, you, you have to be there questioning them. Um, so, yeah, I really think that neither of those things, um, neither of those um, alternatives that, that you raised is, is, is really our role at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, I'm actually relieved with the with that final answer from both of you. So thank, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Monica. Thank you, Monica. On that note, I'd like to thank Rachel Baxendale and Michael Cozziel for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks to you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk everything media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Monica Attard, and thank you for listening. <laughs>